What great reminders and affirmations today that we've been able to sing to one another. And Mark, I appreciate you reminding us uh, that's what we're doing. It's cool to sit over here because I was able to actually look and try to sing to other people who were singing straight up front, but to see the expression on other brothers and sisters' faces as they're singing uh, to Christ did my soul well. And I'd encourage you to take advantage of that as we sing in days ahead, despite the architecture of this room. I realize it's not that conducive, but um, maybe, Lord willing, we build another building. It'd be a little easier for us to see one another as we sing. But now let's hear from God's Word directly in His Word. We're going to be in John 13, verses 36 through 14, 11 today. John 13, 36 to 14, 11. My Bible has uh, like four different columns. That would represent like an entire column worth of text. So we're going to cover a lot of ground. But I'm only going to read a couple verses to begin with so that you can get the main idea of the passage that we're looking at. We're studying John 13, 36 to 14, 11. But I will just read for us to open John 14, 1, and then jump down to verse 11, which very well summarize the main point of the text. Let me read. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 11. Believe me. That I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Uh, Did anyone in here know that today marks the first Sunday of Heart Health Month? Did anybody know that? Does anybody know that February is Heart Health Month? One person? Two? Three? We have three. Four? Okay. Those of you who watched the Today Show this week would know, I had no clue that it was even a thing. It's been around since 1963. I mean, it's part of the U.S. Code. Like, the president's required to speak about Heart Health Month. And it's an interesting thing. I mean, the U.S. Code, by the way, I didn't even know this, because I was wondering if this was legitimately a thing, or if it was just like, you know, people trying to sell meds for heart disease. And I found out that, like, it's in the same code as the the thing that makes Veterans Day a holiday and Memorial Day a holiday. I mean, like, Heart Health Month is legit. And obviously, it's around for a pretty significant reason. I mean, you start looking into the claims of why we need this special focus in the month of February, and you start to find some troubling news. That heart disease is the number one killer of Americans in the United States. One out of every five U.S. citizens die from a heart complication of some kind. I mean, that represents, yeah, definitely 20% of most people. I mean, every 34 seconds, someone is dying in this way, shape, or form. And so, I find it doubly appropriate in light of our text and in light of this month, to ask a simple question. How's your heart? How's your heart? Don't spiritualize it yet. 
I know you people. You're like, oh, I know where he's going. No, you don't. I'm asking, how is your physical heart? I, no, I get it. I'm not a physician. You don't have to listen to me in this, but it's an important question. You know, that high blood pressure, overweight, um, obesity, unhealthy diet, physical inactivity, excessive use of alcohol, all these things contribute to the decline of our heart. But here's an interesting question. What leads people to do these things in the first place? Why does someone feel like they have to pound the alcohol? Why does someone feel so stressed that they never can eat well or exercise or get sleep? If stress is one of the things that causes our heart to deteriorate so quickly, why does it seem we're all so stressed out? We're physical, spiritual creatures, friends. You you need to get it. Like, we like neat categories. We like to think, oh, the physical is one thing, the spiritual is something else. You know, that inner turmoil in your soul will actually begin to show itself in physical ways at times. I get it. I know that some heart-related things are hereditary. That's why doctors always ask that. I'm not dismissing that. If you have heart trouble this morning, I'm not saying it's because you're not managing stress well. But I will say that there is an inevitable link to the pressures that we feel and the effect that it has not only on our heart physically, but on our heart spiritually. The text here calls it a troubled heart. A troubled heart. Some call it worry. But as Christians, we don't like to admit that we're worried. It sounds so sinful. So we use things like this. My heart is very concerned or my heart is very interested. Uh, I have a lack of peace. Or uh, one favorite is I just have a burden. A burden. Doesn't that sound really spiritual? I have a burden. To be burdened over some situation that we cannot control sounds much more spiritual than admitting that I'm worried sick. But burdens or troubles, to use the Bible word, they're all part of something that in many ways we cannot and should not carry. That's what the text says. Thus our hearts race and they wear out. And we see here that the troubled heart is not unique to our own world. It's easy to think, oh, this is the 21st century. This is the Western Hemisphere. This is the modern age. You don't understand. This is unique. Look, I'm looking 2,000 years ago, and Jesus is warning of the same thing. Do not let your heart be troubled. It'd be easy to ask, well, what did those guys have to deal with? (laughs) A ton. A ton. There were three things in particular that were affecting their heart in this moment that I think will endear you to them as we work our way through this text. The first heart trouble they were having is that death was near. They were near death. They were near the death of one that they loved. Man, if anything will get your heart racing, it's the threat of death to one you love. And in this case, there's an implication, maybe their own deaths. Jesus has already said two times that his own heart is troubled. That's the same word. Own heart is troubled. Why? Because he is about to die. He is about to be betrayed. And he's tried to tell them this, that, hey, 
this is about to happen. I'm about to be handed over. And they are thinking about the imminent death of their Lord. This is something that is consuming their hearts. There's a second heart trouble that they're experiencing that you could probably resonate with. And that is failure. Failure. Here's where I think it's wise for us to look back into the text. Verses 36 to 38, chapter 13. It almost seems transitional, but you can't forget it. Look in your Bible. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now, pause for a second. Do you notice that as we remember from last week, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm about to take off, and while I'm gone, you guys need to do one thing. You need to love one another. Peter, being the de facto leader of the group, doesn't even acknowledge the love command because he's so worried about the first thing that he heard that Jesus is about to leave. Notice that. Nobody follows up on the love command. Jesus is going to have to come back to it a chapter later. Instead, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to be gone? Now, Peter follows up on that, and that's where he's saying, like, Lord, where you're going, I want to follow you. And Peter said, to him, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, and it's emphatic in the Greek, will you lay down your life for me? I mean, you can hear the the sarcasm in that question. (laughs) You're going to lay down your life for me? Let me tell you what's really going to happen. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You want to know what's troubling? The fact that their Lord tells them that the strongest among them within 12 hours is going to deny him three times. They're going to fail. Does that ever trouble your heart? I'm such a failure. I do not have the fortitude for Jesus that I long to have. I failed him even this week. I'm afraid that I'll fail him at some point in the future. That'll create a troubled heart. And then there's a third one, and that is loneliness. They're afraid that Jesus is going to leave them alone. Notice he called them little children. I see little children among us. The tenderness with which he speaks to them like knowing that they're going to feel this absence. I mean, some of you have been in those nightmarish situations where you have to say goodbye to a parent before you desire to. And in some cases, it happens unexpectedly, but in some cases, it's known, and they're, they're saying goodbye. And that causes trauma. That causes stress. Or maybe it's a parent that's leaving the house. I've been there, done that where somebody's trying to explain to you, well, mom's not going to be here anymore. Like there's, a, there's a trouble that, that begins to erupt in the heart, and this is exactly to whom Jesus is speaking in this instance. He's trying to prepare them that there will come a time where it's just going to be bad because I'm not going to be physically there. I'm going to be physically absent. I'm going to come back, but there's going to come a space where I will not be able to be with you. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus is actually going to argue, 
it's a good thing. That's what this text is about. He is going to assure them and us in his absence. Not in his presence. You would think, hey, here's the way to assure somebody. Hey, I'm showing up. I'm going to be there. Jesus is actually saying, in my absence, I want to offer some assurances that will tame your troubled heart. We'll see three of them in particular. I want to have you just kind of looking with me in the text so you can find them on your own. I will tell you the first one. The first assurance that he's given us in his absence is that he has prepared a place for us. In his absence, Jesus has prepared a place. That is to assure your heart. He's telling us that ahead of time. Look in chapter 14, verse 1. This is very assuring in light of the fact that the last words on Jesus' mouth is that the strongest among you is going to deny me three times. And you'd be thinking, "Uh uh-oh, now's the time for him to like change the plan. Now's the time for him to throw the hammer down. And what's the next words out of his mouth? You're going to fail me, but let not your hearts be troubled. Isn't that amazing? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Even amid your failure, all is well. Now, there's two commands here. If your different translations translate it different ways, but what we really have is two commands. The first command, believe in God, trust in God. That means the Father. And then the second one, trust in me, trust in the Son. Instead of uh, a comma, you could put an exclamation point behind both of those. Like he's, this is a command. You trust in God, just like Psalm 27 said earlier, you're trusting God in hard times, like you're leaning on Him, you're depending on Him. But Jesus is saying, not only do you trust in the Father, but there's an additional source of protection here, and that is me. You're going to trust in me. And He's going to give them specific reasons why they can trust in Him, why they can trust in Him even in His absence. It's kind of like a parent telling their kids, hey, you don't have to be scared at night. Your dad's here. And your mom's here. (laughs) Like, you've added another source of protection at this point. What Jesus is saying, like, trust in God. In any troubling situation, you could trust in the Father. But I want to tell you now why you can specifically trust in me, even though I'm about to be dead and gone temporarily. Notice his reasoning. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, how many of you grew up reading, memorizing uh, the King James Version of the Bible? Interested in knowing? A good number of you. What does it say there? In my Father's house are many mansions. What do mansions make you think of? It makes me think of Port Royal. (laughs) We used to even sing this this hymn. I I would never sing it today, but this hymn that kind of glorifies the, the material benefits of heaven. I've got a mansion over the hilltop. And it talks about streets being paved with gold, and I want a gold one that's silver lined. It's the most materialistic Christian song ever written. And where did it come from? It came from actually the King James translation, which came from William Tyndale's translation of the Latin word, mansio, 
which just simply means room or dwelling place. Back when the King James was translated, I want to help everybody out here so we can get a real picture of the hope that Jesus is providing. He's not having you hope in a building like what you would see in Port Royal. He's having you hope in the presence of God. What was Tyndale and the King James translators doing? Well, the word mansion just meant a place where you would stay. The Greek word here is the noun form of the word abide that we'll see in John 15, 1. Abide in me and I will abide in you. you know, the, it's a place where you abide. It's a place where you rest. It just meant room, dwelling place. Like in ancient Near Eastern culture, the way things would typically work is that when a husband and wife were betrothed, it's like they're, they're kind of married but they're not. They're legally married, but they haven't consummated the marriage. Like, the guy would basically disappear. He wouldn't see her for a while. And he would go to his father's house and build on an extra room. Amancio. And then, the brother, when he would go off and get married, he'd build another room. It's a patriarchal culture. Everything comes back to the father. And on their respective wedding days... They would go to the bride's house, marry her, and then bring her back with great joy and festivity to the Father's house. When Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, he is saying, look, there is plenty of space. There is is a place for you in the presence of my Father. Will it be luxurious and nice? I'm sure it will. But the emphasis is not on the quality of construction. It is on the presence of the person. He's saying you have a place with God. You're going to live with God. You're not just going to be a temporary dweller, but you actually have a spot in his community. I am going, my leaving, here's how you can be assured, my leaving will make sure that that happens that you will be able to enjoy the eternal, favorable presence of the Father. It's interesting that the term Father's house that we see here in this text is only used one other time in the Gospels, and it's used to refer to the temple. The temple being the place where heaven met earth. What is this room? What is this place that Christ is preparing for us? Well, there is, in a very real sense, a place called heaven now. It is in the presence of God. Those who have died before Christ has come to create his, or establish his new heavens, a new earth, are there in God's presence. But the ultimate hope of the believers seen throughout the scriptures is not actually in a spiritual dwelling with God even now, but it's the eternal dwelling with God in a physical new heavens and new earth forever. That's the hope. That's why Jesus emphasizes the resurrection, that fact that we don't just float along in clouds somewhere up in heaven basking in God's presence like a moth drawn to a flame, but it's real people and real place enjoying the real presence of God. That provides concrete hope. This is what Jesus is opening opening up. Through his death, that old cursed life under Adam is now closed for a subsection of people, and through his resurrection, a new life is being opened. A physical life, a real life, a place with God. And he says, I've got to go. I've got to die so that this can happen. Calm your hearts with this. Be assured 
that all is well. I'm going to be gone, but it'll be good for you. I imagine as I try to like modernize this analogy, the disappointment that a child would feel on a winter vacation. We don't know of winter vacations down here in Florida, but you northern folks do very well. Where people drive on like snow-trodden roads to get to some isolated cabin up in the woods and it is freezing and nobody wants to even stick their hand out the window. It's warm, it's cushy, but it's a little cramped. The brothers and sisters kind of stink and get on one another's nerves after a while. Like nobody wants to be in the car anymore after the long drive, but frankly nobody wants to be out in the snow either. And so what does a well-meaning father do? He pulls up to the cabin, he leaves the children in the car, he goes inside to make sure everything's ready. He starts the fire, he turns on the heat if there is such a thing. He unpacks the car. The kids are still kind of groggy and asleep in the back, but he just steps out for a temporary moment to make things better. He braves the cold so they don't have to. He leaves to make things better. This is exactly what Christ is saying here. I'm leaving to make things better. I am dying so that you might have life. I am living so that you might live forever. I am leaving to make sure that this is forever secured for you. And so I say, dear friends, that we do well to remember that Christ, in His absence, has prepared us a place. I think in light of that, like we're being called to faith, we're being called to believe, to trust in the disappointments of this world, let me use the analogy here, of the car, and we're, by faith, supposed to be anticipating the delights of the world to come, the cabin. Like, just accept the fact, friends, by faith, that the car ride is not as cool as you want it to be. So often we are trying to make this life the most comfortable existence, and we're frustrated when we bump into limitations. We hate that things just aren't as open as we feel that they should be. This world, cursed by sin, was never intended to satisfy those longings. I love the letter that C.S. Lewis wrote at the end of his life to an American woman who wrote to her saying that she was dying, she was scared, and so he wrote back, can you not see death as a friend and deliverer? What is there to be afraid of? Your sins are confessed. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Our Lord says to you, peace, child, peace, relax, let go. I will catch you. He adds this before he closes out the letter. Of course, this may not be the end. Then, make it a good rehearsal. We should be rehearsing now that this is not our home. By faith, we acknowledge that this world isn't everything it's cracked up to be. 
and that the world to come that Jesus is preparing is better than we could ever anticipate it being. Let us make a good rehearsal. Let us keep believing, keep trusting that Christ's departure has led to something better. Friends, do you understand that, that the delights that you feel here in this world, and they are many, they are many, but they're mere appetizers for the world to come. They are to draw us in to, because they never fully satisfy. They're to draw us in to, to something better. Referencing Lewis again, he has very helpful thoughts on heaven. He says, our desires are not too strong. Our desires are too weak. You know, here we are flitting about with things like food and sex uh, when something greater awaits us. And he uses this analogy, I think it's great. He says, most of us are like a little kid stuck in the slum making mud pies, thinking it's the best vacation ever, but he's never seen the beach for a holiday. We just don't know how much better it is. And Christ is saying, trust me, I am leaving to make it better. First assurance. He's prepared a place. Even in his absence, he's prepared a place. The second assurance for our troubled hearts. He's provided the way. He has provided the way. He has not only prepared a place, he has provided the way. Let's actually start reading at verse 4 because Jesus kind of left a hanging statement there. He says, and y'all know the way to where I'm going. Now, here's the thing. He's saying, I'm going off to prepare a place. I'm going to come back and get you at my second coming, and I'm going to like, make sure that you enter into this place. But in the meantime, he leaves this like, odd note. And y'all know the way to where I'm going. Like In the meantime, you know how to get there. Well, where's there? Well, he said it, the presence of the Father, the Father's house. It's, it's almost like, again, I imagine the parent leaving, and said, I'm going to come back and get you guys. I'm going to bring you into the cabin. But in the meantime, you know how to get in there if something happens. Like, y'all know where I'm going. You know how to get there. Now, Thomas, at this particular point, is, um, he's just going to call out, you know, what everybody else is thinking. I like that about him in particular. You find in the, the three instances that you see him in the gospel, he's like the perpetual realist. He's definitely a glass half empty kind of guy, but we need those people in our lives. So remember Thomas was the one that said in John 11, like Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to go uh, back and and take care of Lazarus. And he's like, we're all going to die. If you do this, we're all going to die. That's just what he says. And then in John 21, like, I don't know where Thomas was, but everybody else saw Jesus appear and he shows back up. I mean, excuse me, Thomas shows back up and they're like, we saw Jesus. And he's like, no, you didn't. He's like, look, I'm not going to believe unless I actually like touch the, the, the scarred side and hands of our Lord, and Jesus lets him do it. Here's a similar thing. Jesus is saying like, hey, it's going to be better. I'm going to leave the car. It's going to be cool. And by the way, you know where I'm going. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't have a clue what you're saying. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. I mean... Read it. Tell me if I'm interpreting it wrong. He says, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, we should forgive Thomas a little bit because 
you could say, well, duh, he just said in verses 3 and 4 that he's going to prepare a place with the Father, you know, and that he's going to come back and get you. But when you're in shock, you know this to be true emotionally. When you're in shock, you're not processing everything correctly. Let's, let's cut Thomas a little bit of slack. He's like, okay, I need some details. I need, I, I, love, the, I love the vision. I just need to know for sure, like, how are we going to get there? Which is like half the people in our church. You know, like, tell me the next step, please. Jesus is like, fine, I'll tell you the next step. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do you know him and have seen him? So Jesus does a little bit of redirecting here and says, hey, here's the answer to the question. Where am I going? I'm going to be in the favorable presence of the Father. I'm going to be there forever. And by the way, if you ever need to get to me, you know how to get there. Thomas is like, okay, run that by me again. How do we get there? It's the favorable presence of the Father. That seems like a far stretch. And he's like, no, you already know how to get there. I've already taught you this. All you need is to trust in me, to have a relationship with me, and thereby you will enjoy this forever fellowship with the Father. And that's why he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Probably the most preached passage in John, outside of John 3.16 itself. So what, friends, am I going to offer you that you've never heard on this? Nothing. But it is, I think, ideal for us to listen to it as freshly as possible. When Jesus says the way, what's he talking about? He's talking about the way to get to heaven. The way to get to the presence of God. Notice that the way is not a place. There's no GPS coordinates. It's not a prescription. Take a left here, take a right there. It's a person. Jesus is the way. It's the difference between you asking me, like, how to get to my house, and me saying, well, you could turn here, you could turn there, or me saying, let me show you. I, no longer am I telling you the way. I am the way. Jesus is the way. He, the, only in relationship with him do you get in. And he says, I am the truth. He adds a couple of parallel statements to make this even more clear. Uh, there's not just some place you need to go to get to God. But there's also a truth. That's truth is a person. Jesus is the truth of the Father. He's the one who is truth. You need to know something. There's a special knowledge you need to have. And what is that knowledge? It is of me. It is of, of the Son. That's what you need to know. And, and it's here where we do well just to revisit just one of the objections of our time to this. Anytime you say that that someone is the truth, like in this post-postmodern, we're not even postmodern anymore, friends, it's post-postmodern age, people are like, truth? What's that? Well, just in case you forgot, there's such a thing as right and wrong, true and false. Like, there's facts. You know, two plus two equals five. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Could you imagine that, like on a test? Two plus two equals four. Like, no, I was really feeling five in my own heart. Like, like what do you want to say to that? Like, in this culture, what do you want to say to that? Because like, there's been a denial of absolute truth. The only absolute truth in existence is that there is no absolute truth. There's no such thing as a right or a wrong. And this is, 
rather odd because, I mean, the, tr- the truth, <laughs> I have to keep saying it, the truth is <laughs> that we, we do still hold to absolutes in every field on the planet except for spiritual truth. All of a sudden, that's up for question. Of course, two plus two still equals four. Or if I were to say to my uh, child, hey, that red light's still on the stove. Don't put your hand on the stove. It's hot. I say, well, it's not hot to me. No, I don't, I don't care what you say. It's hot, regardless of how you feel about it. Like, it's hot. It's going to burn you. There is objective truth. But then all of a sudden, you start to apply this to the truth about eternal life, and things get squirrely. Let's say that uh, you live next to a Mormon family. They believe that Jesus Christ is the brother of Satan and is merely an angelic being. You believe that Christ is God in the flesh, unrelated to Satan. Both of you could be wrong, but both of you cannot be right. Another example. In India, they believe the existence of more than 300,000 gods. You believe that there's only one. Both of you cannot be right. The laws of logic demand in math and science and history that there's a right and there's a wrong. There's a true and there's a false. When we get to the spiritual, all of a sudden it's like, all right, well, whatever is right for you to believe is right, and whatever is right for me to believe is right. And so if, if you want to believe that every tree, bush, and bird is a spirit that leads us to God, you can do that, and I will believe that it's just Jesus. One person put it this way, religion now is just one happy buffet of possibilities. Spirituality is just another supermarket where you can choose the God of your choice. That's the spirit of the age. Now let's apply the scripture in this text. I am the truth. The is actually in the Greek text. It's not a truth. I am the truth. And he says, I'm the life. He said this all along. He says, you want life? You want to live? You find it in me. Some of us, to borrow and modify the words of the old song, we're looking for life in all the wrong places. Some of us look for the good life and health and fitness and wellness and retirement and significance and beauty and brawn or religious rituals or sensuality We have this perverted notion of where life really is, like what we should be really living for. And Jesus says, hey, you want to know life? It's in me. Instead of going to those places for life, Jesus directs us to come to him. And lest it seem as if I'm putting too much on an article like the word the, let's just let Jesus clarify what he means. I'm only repeating Jesus. I'm not trying to be some stodgy fundamentalist. This is what Jesus said. No one comes to the Father. Paul's. Do you hear the despair in that? Can you imagine that? No one will ever enjoy the presence of the Father. Let that rest for a moment. 
And then hear these words, except through me. None of us deserve God's presence according to the text. And the only way we would ever enjoy it is through the exception clause of what Christ himself has done. He's the one that's claiming exclusivity. And that's why he adds, if you had known me, if you've been in relationship with me, know in that context and culture doesn't mean just intellectual awareness. It means covenantal relation. If you have known me, if you've entered into relationship with me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, do you know him and have seen him? He's saying, all right, this is it. You've already known me. You should have known me. You should have been in relationship with me, which means that you should be in relationship with the father. But from now on, you're really going to know because I'm about to die and you're going to see what God's really like. But the only way that you'll ever be able to enjoy the presence of God before I return is through the path, the path that I have provided. He's provided the path. The good news, friends, this is good news. I know I'm making it sound like bad news, but the good news is that God has provided the way. We have it. And anything else is fatal. I was listening. I do this every week, just so you know. I study the text. I write my sermon for you. And then I listen to someone else preach because I'm like, I should probably sit under the text from somebody else. The guy that I, I chose to listen to this week is one of my favorites for a myriad of reasons. He, he speaks to normal people. Uh, people think of me as scholarly. <laughs> That's not really true. Like, I'm a pretty normal guy, and I want to know, like, um, so what? So he helps with that, and he told a, a story. And when I first heard it, I'm like, this sounds like a preacher story. I don't think this is true. That's kind of sad. Preacher stories don't seem true. They're like fishermen stories. <laughs> no offense. But I checked this one out. L.A. Times, January 1985. Stunning picture of what we have here. One evening at LAX, there was a large, unmarked, unclaimed suitcase, and it was discovered at the customs office at the airport. And when the customs agents opened the suitcase, they found the three day old dead body of an Iranian woman inside. It was learned that the woman was the wife of a young Iranian living in the United States. Unable to obtain a visa to enter the country and join her husband, she took matters into her own hands and attempted to smuggle herself in via the airplane's cargo bay. While to her, the plan seemed simple, though risky, officials were hard-pressed to understand how such an attempt could ever succeed. Even if she survived the journey, she would still be considered an illegal alien, having entered through the improper channels, and she would have been forced to leave. And this preacher says, Ladies and gentlemen, heaven is no less designed. Entry plans of your own making will prove not only to be foolish, but fatal. If you go your own way, if you pick and choose your own path to heaven, you will be dead on arrival. No way in 
accept. Accept through Christ. I say this kindly. I say this compassionately. I say this sincerely. I say this having prayed much about this very statement I'm about to make. Some of you are trying to smuggle your way into heaven through the suitcase of religion or ritualism or tradition or good works and you will be, I say this kindly, dead on arrival. There is no hope for you to enjoy the eternal presence of God apart from faith alone in His Son alone. There is nothing else. There's nothing else. And I would say, just in all the kindness that I can muster, like, beware of those sacred substitutes, those things that will say Jesus is a way, but not the way. It'll say, yeah, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need these rules and rituals. You also need these sacraments. Uh, You also need this crazy charismatic experience, Jesus plus kind of things. Paul warns that if anybody, even an angel from heaven comes proclaiming to you a gospel other than what you've heard, that Christ alone is the only way into the eternal presence of God, let him be, his words not mine, damned. That suitcase will kill you. But there's a better way anyway. Why cram yourself in the suitcase when all you've got to do is come to faith alone in Christ alone? (laughs) I tell you the bad news to tell you the good news. The assurance, the thing that you can rest in. That Christ has already provided the way, the only way. He did it all. The only thing left for us is just to trust in that, to depend on what He's done. The text actually says, believe in Him. Some people like to take that word in because it can be translated in or into and say, believe into him. When you believe, you are in him. You have become a part of him. And what's true of him has now become true of you and you will enjoy the eternal presence of God Almighty. Beware for the suitcase of religion. Come fully and freely through the way, the truth, the life. It was Christ. If that's confusing for you, I say this and I'll move on. If that's confusing for you, you're like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Don't the other things believe in faith too? Faith in Jesus? If that's confusing, I'm telling you this. I've got nowhere to be till five o'clock tonight. Let's talk. Talk to me. Talk to another church member. We need to talk. With open Bible and compassionate heart, I would love to explain the difference. So we're assured, we're assured that he's prepared a place for us. Even though he's gone, he's prepared a place. Even though he's gone, he's provided the way. And there's one more assurance that he gives. Even though he's gone, he's presented the Father. Jesus has presented the Father. This one's the hardest for us because like you you get to verses 8 through 11 and you're looking at it and you're like, hmm. Uh, the first two I get, like, there's a place for us, there's a path. Um, but this, this, it gets really historical. 
Now, before I read it for you, I I want to give you a a cultural clue. I'm going to give you a cultural clue ahead of time. I could either read it, let you be confused, and then try to give it to you after. I'm like, hey, let's just save it. Let me tell you the cultural clue to start off with, and then I think you'll appreciate it better. To understand verses 8 through 11, uh, you need to understand that people in the Old Testament wanted more than anything else to enjoy the personal presence of God. That was the pinnacle experience of the Old Testament saying. Remember uh, Moses? Like he's losing his mind with the prospect of having to lead a couple million people through the wilderness and then face an army (laughs) of a bunch of natives uh, with just, you know, this ragtag group of people who don't have any provisions. And he's like, Lord, I'm not going anywhere. I can't go unless you go with me. And then God tells him, okay, I will go with you. And Moses is like, okay, I, I trust you in that, but to, to, to really prove it, show me yourself. Show me your glory. This is Exodus 32. And God showed himself to Moses. And that assured him, like, all is well. I, I think even in our own day, we kind of experience something like this where uh, we say, like, all right, Lord, if, if you're just give." Just, just show me. Just, if, if you'll just reveal yourself to me in a special way, like, I'll do it. It's scary. I don't like my prospects. But if you'll just, like, like, give me a miracle. Give me a sign, right? Isn't that what we asked for? Like, okay, I've read your word. I get it. I've prayed with people. I understand that. I've heard what the pastor said at church. But I, what I really, really, really want to see is you, and then I'll have the confidence to move on. That's exactly what Philip now is going to say. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. We get the path and we get the place, but show us his presence. If you would just show us that, we're going to be all right. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So, Jesus, this is very dense, but Jesus is saying, hey, you want that amazing experience where you see God? You've already seen him. I've already shown you what it's like. There there is nothing better that I could show you about God the Father than what you have already seen in the person of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like, surprise! I and the Father are one. The Father's in me. I'm in him. What he says, I say. What he does, I do. And then he says, you should just believe that. You should trust in that. But even if you don't trust what I'm saying, look and see what I've done. Remember the old song? I'm a child of the 90s. I apologize for this. Maybe it was Sheryl Crow. Like, what if God were one of us? Some 90s child can correct me later. I'm getting a heads up. All right, good. It was Cheryl Crow. (laughs) She thought she was so profound. What would it look like if God were one of us? Read the Bible. 
it would look like Jesus. You want an amazing picture of God? You want to be stunned by His brilliance and His glory? See what He has already done in His time on earth. What would it look like if God were man? He'd turn water to wine. He'd raise dead children. He'd restore broken bodies. He would abolish evil. He would feed thousands. That's what Jesus is saying. You want the pinnacle experience? I've already given it to you. What you're going to need in the days to come is not an additional revelation of the Father. You're going to need the one that I've already given you. And the apostles and prophets of the New Testament would actually hold on to this as well. I'm just going to read this to you. You do not have to turn there, but maybe you could mark it in your notes. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I love this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Like you're reading those opening lines and you're like, man, those were cool days back in the prophets, you know, and those amazing signs were happening and those miracles were going down in the Old Testament. That'd be cool. I'd like to see that. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, like, who cares about that? We've already got the best picture. Jesus has shown up and showed us what God is like. He died on our behalf. He rose again. He conquered death. He's ascended into heaven. Like, what else do you want to see? (laughs) You know, Our tendency to look for some amazing experience outside of what God has already provided for us just reminds me of my own stupidity. I think I'm a good big picture guy. I'm terrible with details, uh, even to the point of like never knowing where my keys are, ever. Oh, thank you. Christmas present. I just thought of this. One of those little Apple things. Anyway, but you know where they are half the time? In my stinking pocket. Well, actually not in my pocket. I don't put them in my pocket. I I clip them on the back of my belt. But they're there. Here I am, five out of seven days a week, scrambling around the house, looking for these keys that I absolutely have to have to, to make my life function that day. I can't get in my car. I can't get in the church. I, and I've already got the stinking things. It's in your pocket, friends. You're like, God, if you would just show yourself to me. I'm missing it. I know that you're around here somewhere. If you would just give me a revelation of yourself, I'd be good. I could handle it. And he's saying, it's in your pocket. You got it. I've already shown it to you. I've shown you in the Lord Jesus Christ. What else do you need? What do you want to know? You say, this sounds a little too impractical. What does this actually look like? I'm going to admit something. The enjoyment of Jesus' revelation of the Father's presence is something that is done by faith, not feeling, 
by faith, not feeling. In spirit, not in sentimentality. In spirit, not in sentimentality. Sometimes we're just walking around looking for some kind of visceral experience, thinking that's what God's really like. And we have never had another alternative than to trust what He has revealed about Himself in His Word. It's, it's easy for me as the preaching pastor here to get defensive of our church. One of the accusations that I've heard of late that I really like, you know, you get some uh, critique and you just kind of lean in. You're like, yes, that means we're doing something right. People are like, you're always talking about Jesus. It's like, guilty. <laughs> guilty. We're, yeah, that's us. The person meant well. They actually were saying, well, why don't you talk about the Father? Why don't you talk about the Spirit? Well, the, the Father sent the Son as His revelation, His Word. That's how we know who the Father is. And the Spirit, by the way, if you want to know what the Spirit does, everybody's concerned that we're not leaning on the Spirit. You know what the Spirit does? He points people to Jesus. That's how you know you're in a Spirit-filled church. You hear a lot about Jesus. You know you're not in a spirit-filled church if you see a lot going on with the individuals. Like, whoa, they did some crazy stuff today. That's not the spirit. The spirit points people to Jesus. So what is it that you really need, friends? Like, you want to calm your heart? You need to keep looking to Christ alone in faith. As he has revealed himself, I say this simply, in his word and, I'm not afraid to say this, in his signs. God has revealed himself through his word. Yes, the preached word on Sundays. You want to keep seeing Jesus. You want to keep knowing of him. Keep going to a church that's preaching Jesus, making him known through the proclamation of the word. Keep reading of Jesus in your own time in God's word. Like that's the vision that you need. But the cool thing about the church that God has given, not just our church, but any true church, is he actually has given us something that we can see and taste and feel and touch. In the next few weeks, we're going to have people getting baptized here. You know what that is? It's a visual picture of you having been immersed into Christ, what God has done for you. You're seeing a picture of how God's worked. I can't see when somebody says, hey, I'm converted or I'm following Jesus. I can't see. You look the same as you did the week before. But when I see somebody get baptized, now it's like, oh, I get it. They were, I mean, God killed them in Christ and brought them back to life in him as well. And then tonight, shamelessly, I invite those of you who are in Christ to come to communion. Why? Because it's the only tangible sign that we have of his work to us. Everything else is a word. But the simple bread and that simple juice, it doesn't become anything magical. But it is a commemoration of what God has done for us in Christ. It is a revelation. A broken body, shed blood on our behalf, all is well. That's what you need. Friends, I can't come to the end of this particular message and say, you just rededicate your faith commitment to God and all will be well. I'm going to tell you, get in the way of His grace. Like, keep listening to His preached word about His Son and His pictured word of His Son. That's the experience that you need. That's the experience that we need. That is what calms the troubled heart. We need a bigger view of Jesus than we have of our problems. And the normal means of grace is what helps us with that. And so I ask you, 
How's your heart? How's your heart? Is it like a a tamed lake or a troubled ocean? The difference between the two is whether or not it's resting squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ. I grew up singing all kinds of hymns. One of my favorite, I've said this often before, is on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Is your soul on Christ or is it just near Him? I think some of us could more accurately sing, near Christ the solid rock I stand, amid the ground that's sinking sand, amid the ground that's sinking sand. You're like, I'm close. I've got one foot on Christ, and I've got the rest of it on everything I'm trying to establish in this world. Oh, man, that's a miserable existence. (laughs) That's a troubled heart. That is a recipe for a troubled heart. Your only hope is to rest in Christ alone. And and why, why not? Why not rest in Him? I mean, after all, even though He's not physically in the building right now, He's prepared a place. He's provided the path, and He's shown you the Father's presence. And so I encourage you, dear friends, trust in Christ ongoingly, trust in Christ exclusively. Here's two practical takeaways. One, trust in Christ ongoingly. The command that's here three times, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me, is an active, present imperative. It just means keep believing in me. Keep trusting in me. Some of us think, oh, oh yeah, I trusted in Jesus like 10 years ago. I'm I'm cool. (laughs) You begin trusting in Jesus, and then you keep trusting in Jesus. Why would Jesus frame the command this way? Because they're about to see him mangled by the Roman government. They're going to see his lifeless, naked body hanging on a tree. It's going to be at that point that everybody's like, what? This is your good plan? You're providing a path in this? I mean, there's going to come times where all you see is the shame and the scar and the death, but there will come a day when you see the glory. Until then, you keep believing. You keep trusting. You keep looking to Him in faith. Trust in Him ongoingly. And then here's the last admonition. Trust in Him exclusively. Some of you, I don't doubt it at all. I I think some of you are so close to Jesus, but so far away. You view Jesus favorably, you view Him positively, but you are not trusting in Him exclusively. You're still holding on to something else. Let it go. Confess Him as only Lord and Savior. And enjoy His peace.